Hello, and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. Today I have an uh, interview with a game developer named Jaron Kong, who is working on a recently released um, car- digital card game, one-player digital card game called Quantum Protocol. Um, actually, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you will have recognized that name because uh, my last guest, Justin Ma, uh, mentioned it as a game that uh, he thought was really cool. So I went and I looked it up and I tried it out and uh, I was immediately impressed with uh, many things about the game. Like, so in the card game space and particularly in the digital card game space, um, I end up playing like a lot of mobile games and um, there's even when, so I have a lot of problems with CCGs as people probably know, Um, but even within games that aren't CCGs, there's just like this CCG-ism that is like spread all over all these games. And so I, I really find myself being very disappointed in a lot of them. <clears throat> and this game just, um, it stood out to me. Uh, various things about its systemic rules really just seemed um, different and interesting. And uh, th- there's a lot that, about it that I like. And we'll talk about the game uh, Quantum Protocol on this episode, this interview. Um, but yeah, uh, Jaren is a solo indie dev as well, someone making single player strategy games. Um, so I always love to talk to other developers who are working in that space. Um, and I think the conversation went really well and I'm, I'm very excited to um, to announce it. I also wanted to make another qu- couple quick brief announcements about Gem Wizards. One is that we got PC Gamer coverage the other day, which is pretty sweet. Uh, We got on the front page of PC Gamer and uh, the website. Anyway, I don't even know if they still do a magazine. I'm not sure. I doubt they still send out the CD that had all the demos on it, though. That's a shame. I really like that about PC Gamer. Um, But yeah, uh, we got that coverage, and it was really positive. The author, the editor, just really seemed to get the game, both in a mechanical perspective, but also, like, the humor of the game and the flavor. It really resonated with them, and that was, like, that was just an amazing experience for me. It was very, very validating. So I I really appreciated that. And um, the other thing is that we have a new feature coming to Gem Wizards Tactics over the next few days, probably. Uh, hopefully by the end of this week, um, which will make the campaign mode a lot more kind of like RPG loopish. That's something I've been, I occurred to me recently. I'll just give you like a quick little kind of game design, uh, insight that I've had recently, which I think to many people will be like, yeah, duh. But, um, someone coming from a strategy game design background or even a roguelike game design background, it wouldn't necessarily be that obvious, but Your game has to, if it's a single player game, it has to, if you really want people to play it and engage with it, it has to have a certain kind of RPG loop to it. Um, And what that specifically means is um, that, uh, you know, the obvious thing is like some sort of sense of progression, but that's not really the core of it. That's part of it. Um, It's also a sense of um, each match something changing. So the obvious way to do it, which is something I'm looking into figuring out good ways to do, is during a battle in Gem Wizards, let's say, or any game, um, you know, a treasure chest drops. And at the end of the battle, you can open the chest and now you have some new tool that you can use to, uh, to play your next match. And so you're excited to try this new match with a new tool, right? So that each match doesn't feel like you're just doing kind of the same stuff over and over again. Um, so I think that's really important. That can also be part of your sort of componential complexity, sort of tutorial system as things are building out. But, um, it should also be something that's like kind of a permanent fixture in at least one of your modes. Now, the problem is you also need to have a mode, uh, like a long-term mode or like a, for me, a ranked mode where that stuff doesn't exist. And I really think that's the way to do it is, you know, you have a, a, perhaps a main mode or some kind of, you know, main engagement mode or even an onboarding mode that has that kind of RPG loop to it. And then 
later they can sort of settle into the more strategy game design space. Uh, if you think about a game like a multiplayer game like League of Legends or something that has that, um, you know, early on you're like unlocking all this stuff and getting these new characters, et cetera, et cetera. Later on you have all the characters and, you know, maybe you're getting skins and some free rewards in that sense, but that's not why you're playing new games of League of Legends. Um, you're playing, uh, at that point, you're already like an established player and you don't really need that loop. But to get people involved and to get them interested, I really think that RPG loop is important. And that's something that's been really missing in a lot of my games. So that's what I'm working on now. Anyways, without any further ado, I would like to present you my conversation with Jaron Kong. Okay, Jaron Kong, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Um, so uh, up front, I usually like to ask um, developers, um, you know, about their background in general. Just like where do they come from? You know, mm -hmm. like what disciplines uh, were they trained in? If they have any training in, um, and and that kind of thing. Just because I like to know, you know, where they're coming from uh, and and how they got into indie dev. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Good question. So. I first started game development stuff um, back in elementary school. I found, uh, you know, Game Maker back when it was like the red bubble with the little uh, hammer inside it. It was like this very crude kind of drag and drop thing. So I literally started with Game Maker, you know, back in the day, drag and drop code blocks and stuff. And I made like, you know, I, I got like random sprites off the internet, ripped, you know, in like MS Paint and like, you know, cut out the little things and, you know, made them like flash on the screen and stuff. And I was like, yo, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like kind of what got me into, um, you know, at first it was just code blocks, you know, drag and dropping and stuff. And then that's kind of what got me into like programming as a whole, actually, mm -hmm. um, making games, which I think is a common story for a lot of people is like they kind of get into, you know, programming computers just to like make video games and stuff, you know, with, you know, um, when they're just kids. Sure. Um, but so, you know, after doing that, you know, I, I basically made games all through just like on my own on weekends and stuff, just all through, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, and then eventually when it came time to like go to college, I'm like, you know, I want to, you know, I want I want to try. I want to I, I want to think about doing this, you know, more seriously. You know, can I mm. is there an opportunity for me to like go to college and use that to kind of line up something like game development. Like, what does that even look like? You know, coming out of yeah. high school, I don't really like know, you know, what, what is game development like? It's, I like making games. So, you know, sure. that's a good start. Um, that's the so main thing it some, takes really, you know, like motivation really. Yeah. I mean, you know, having something, cause coming out of high school, um, especially talking to some of my friends, I definitely knew, you know, after, you know, I got to play around and do things on my own. So I definitely had this sense of, this is what I like doing. Like, this is what I want to do. Hmm. You know, irrelevant of, you know, what I'm going to be able to do, what I'll have the opportunities to do. I'm like, I like making games. I like programming computers. I like, you know, being creative with making the computer doing stuff. You know, I liked making music back then and stuff. And I used it to like make my games. I liked like, you know, that the technical side of making games with the creative side, how it all kind of like comes together in this really cool thing. Like I knew I wanted to do more of that. Hmm. Um, so then it became a matter of like, okay, you know, now that it's time to like go to college or something, you know, like what, what's out there, what can I do? And I ended up choosing a program, um, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So I, I grew up on the West coast. First of all, this was all in like California. Okay. Um, I grew up in Irvine, which is like, you know, city in Southern California. Um, so when I was going, looking to go to college, I was looking at different programs and I found uh, RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, people on the West coast probably haven't heard of it, but I'm guessing, you know, you're from the East coast, right? Have you heard of that? Yeah. No, I have not heard of it. No. Oh, RPI. So it's like upstate New York. When I pe people say New York, they're like, oh, how is the city? And I'm like, right. no, 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 no. Upstate <laughs> New York. It's like, it's near Albany. Sure, sure. Like, there's like nothing up there. It's, yeah. it's pretty, uh, <laughs> it's pretty wooded and like, yeah, a lot of trees. Yeah. A lot of nothing. Um, but yeah, so the school is up there and they had this interesting program. Um, they called it GSAS, G-S-A-S, Game Simulation Arts and Sciences. Mm -hmm. um, and it was designed, when I looked at the program, I was like, okay, that's cool. And it was attached to RPI, which is like a technical school. It's like an engineering school, basically. Okay. Um, and then they also had like their normal comp sci stuff. And the way they structured their program is the, the GSAS program, the Game Simulation Arts and Sciences degree, was basically designed to be dual majored with other things. So mm. this is when I was like, okay, this seems like perfect. So I, you know, I applied there and I got in. And it, so I essentially did a dual major in comp sci, you know, the normal, like normal comp sci that everybody understands. And then also the uh, games program. And it was actually pretty interesting because I also applied to some other places, um, including 
it was really weird. Like I didn't expect to get in at all. I remember applying and it was a really interesting experience. I applied to the USC, like the cinematic art school, because they mm -hmm. had their um they had their interactive media program at the time. And that was kind of cool because that was the program that made um like that game company came out of. They made mm -hmm. like, you know, Journey, Flower, sure, like, yeah. those flower, those games. So you could tell, you know, you go in there and then this is like the program that like kind of cultivated the people that went on to do that. Mm -hmm. And you go there and it's like, holy, holy crap, this is like they, that school has so much money that interact that uh, cinematic art school yeah. in USC. It's like I'm used to like schools being kind of, you know, the buildings are old and everything. But at USC, the cinematic art school, everything was so nice. Hmm. But when I was talking to them and kind of learning about it, it was like. I, I, I definitely wanted the engineering side. Like I didn't want to give up like the computer science stuff to be kind of like the bedrock of like, you know, if all else fails, I still have comp sci, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I ended up going to, um, I ended up choosing RPI, went there, and it was actually really interesting just kind of doing that program. Um, it's the kind of thing that doesn't show on a resume. It doesn't show in like, you know, when you go apply to jobs or whatever, or, you know, in any interview setting. But what you realize is a lot of schoolwork, like especially traditional work, like the comp sci program, it's very like independent, right? You like do your lab assignments, you do your homework, you take your exams, right? It's just like every other class like that we've all known, everybody does. Um, but when you do like this, this games program, it's all project based and you're in teams with like other people that are not necessarily um, like programmers or whatever, right? You have like other artists, other music people, design people. You have like a bunch of different people in different disciplines that need to come together and make these games. Hmm. So the program is set up around projects. And what that is, is like, so you just get, you get put in groups, you make a game, you crit, you critique, you crit them, and then you do that again and again and again. And basically the thing that just changes is like, you know, the tools you're using, the size of the group, the composition, but essentially for four years, we're just put into groups, make a game, crit, put in nice. a group, make a game, crit. And you get to work with a bunch of different type of people, right? You don't work with the same people. Yeah. And through doing that, uh, you rapidly realize there's people you get along with and people you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's also really important to know, right? Like, you know, what it means to work on a team. And, you know, sometimes you just, you don't get along with everybody. And then figuring out, like, you know, who are the types of people I get along with and, you know, gives you more information to work with like that. You learn how to, like, work on a team. That that's really and that, cool, and I'm I'm glad to hear that you had a positive experience uh, going to school for games. For a long time, you know, uh, mm -hmm. people would go into these like game design programs and come out and just feel like this was kind of a joke, or like it was only teaching me some narrow discipline. You know, like it was only it was called mm -hmm. game design, but it really was only art or something like that. Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so it sounds like what you did was really like you know get those like 100 you know bad games out of you and like just grind through those and you know and build up those also social um relationships and things like that as well yeah no absolutely and it was definitely it was only in hindsight that i really realized this right because going through that program like i that that was my school that was just how school was for me right like mm -hmm. basically doing that i didn't really realize until i started you know you know getting out in the workplace you know working at jobs and stuff and you talk to people who like didn't quite have that experience especially right out of college you know that you know your first job out of college or whatever um, you definitely talk to people and, and I started noticing how like I was used to situations that they were definitely not as used to navigating, mostly socially, like just how to work on a team with people when you disagree with them. How do you deal with that? Right. Like, what do you what do you do? Because, you know, in throughout college for all these different projects, you know, I disagreed with people tons of times. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know sometimes we're not friends anymore but then it's also just called so it's almost like a uh, you know like a trial run so like you know most of these people i'm probably never going to see again in my life some a lot of them i do though right so sure. it's you know some people you know you find out you know more about yourself you meet different people and you but it's also contrast juxtaposed with kind of this uh computer science education right this computer science program which is like very traditional hmm. so that juxtaposition really like it seems kind of hooky and the um especially the games program like you're hinting at it's like i definitely know some people in the program you really do get out what you put in for these project-based yeah. classes for these yeah. project-based classes especially it is so easy to just do the bare minimum and like mm -hmm. get an a and you'll pass the class you'll be totally fine yeah but a lot of art programs are like that yeah exactly but if you push the program if you go talk to the professors if you like if you get the A, but you're like, I want more feedback. What did you think about this? Or if they give you one comment, you go up and talk to them about like, well, what, what wasn't, what wasn't working about that for you? Yeah. Right. You have to really engage with it and they will talk to you. They're right. usually more than happy to. They're just used to most people not caring is what I found. <laughs> 
So, so, so your yeah. your background, you would say your background is kind of like a jack of all trades, like like in high school and stuff. Like you were doing art, music, uh, programming. You're kind of everything, right? Like there wasn't one thing where you're like, okay, I'm like, you know, my best skill is blankety blank. I'm definitely. I mean, I would definitely say my best skill was uh, always on like the programming and like you know the yeah programming sure. engineering like that side of things. As mm -hmm. far as like art, I dabbled. I just you know I put together some like crude pixel art and stuff. But I never like drew anything from scratch. And then as I you know as I did more things, you know talked to more people, did more games, um, I realized something about like doing art, especially like you know like when I say art. Um, it means many different things, but when I when I refer to it, I'm referring specifically to like I'm like drawing a picture, right? I'm drawing mm -hmm. like an illustration. You know, I get Photoshop out my or you know Paint Tool Sci or whatever tool, and you know use your tablet and you know draw the picture um, and stuff like that. And what I realized my with um, doing that as I tried to do that a couple times, it's like I don't love the process. I love the result too much. Mm. Versus like with engineering, I love the process of putting the code together and solving the problems as it builds up. I don't mm -hmm. really the end solution of the code working is not really that important to me. I just love the process and the journey to get there. Yeah. But when I was like kind of playing out with art and, you know, trying to learn it and do it, and I took some classes in college for it and stuff, what I realized was I really don't like the process of learning yeah. art, of doing the art, of like, you know, looking at the form and, you know, slowly making, slowly having the thing come to life, you know, in front of me. Yeah, that didn't it didn't quite click with me. Like I, I enjoyed it, but I don't enjoy it in the same way I enjoyed how seeing, you know, the code and the logic come together. Yeah, that's a good so way. I was of... always just like in a rush to like get to the end results. And yeah. that was why when I realized like, you know, this is it's something I will never really be truly good at because I don't care enough about the process. And if I'm going to spend an hour, I'd rather spend an hour, you know, refining my skills technically on the engineering side and the programming side rather than that hour spent, you know, learning the process of like how to create art. Now, the thing, the reason I got you on the show is because your game Quantum Protocol is um, to me um, very interesting. And I'm like the sort of person who I will play these games and I'm like, I'm like instantly, I, I feel like I know what the game is. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a lot of times I'll play games and I'm just like, I already know like, the, like this yeah, is yeah, not yeah. gonna have any surprises for me. I don't like, yeah. and, and I already get it because I've already played things that basically are on a structural level, like yeah, doing exactly. the same stuff. And your game, um, you know, did not strike me that way. It struck me as um, doing some really like interesting, important um, uh, things within like the card game, you know, digital card game sort of space. And so that makes me wanna ask like, mm -hmm. In terms of those disciplines and your kind of like upbringing, um, what was like your relationship specifically to game design, like as in like the discipline of building rule sets and like, um, at, you know, were there points, were there major points where you're like, oh, that's like a thing distinct from the rest of game development, distinct from programming, distinct from everything else. Um, and I don't know. Tell tell me a little bit about that and how you you know uh, we're going to get to quantum protocol, but I, I'm curious to hear a bit more about your journey just as a game designer and you know how you got to where you are now. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. So, like, uh, it, it purely came through like trial and error. When I real, it's like I kind of stumbled upon this whole idea of like design, like this whole the whole problem space of design, so to speak. Right? If we imagine like the different disciplines, you know, art, engineering design is just like it's a problem space right there's like you know yeah I, yeah i don't know how else to put it there there's mm -hmm. like problem it's a problem space um and i kind of like stumbled upon i didn't really think about design um as that problem right because before when i first started making games and stuff and as i made games i was just like oh i want to like make the thing work i want to make the thing shoot and obviously you like copy other games right sure so you basically like skip the design phase by being like i'm going to take that i'm going to re-implement it and you know all the design works done for me because i'm just copying what they did right um but then as I started like changing the rules, you know, I'm like, oh, what happens if I make it shoot faster? What happens if this does this? You know, and tweaking it, and then I see how the game becomes, wow, that's kind of broken, or that's not really fun. Like, oh, well, why don't I just do this for the whole game? What's the point of this other thing if this is so good, right? You start seeing how like the way something, you know, the way the game is, is this like very fine-tuned machine um, that, you know, that, that, that takes a lot of consideration. And a lot of it was just like, as I tried to make different games and stuff, um, I realized how important like the design was and how like, you know, the right to have kind of that muscle memory of like common design patterns and common design pitfalls, you know, especially within a genre of like, you know, 
you don't do these certain things. Like the one thing that, you know, quantum or, you know, skip a little bit ahead is like quantum had a constant problem with is a problem that I was familiar with for like basically the past like three games I made or worked on um, was like waves. The problem of if you have like discrete waves of enemies, like all the problems, design problems that actually that actually brings in, right? Because then you have issues like stalling. You know, what stops a player from just leaving one enemy alive and doing nothing and just, you know, like chugging health potions or whatever. And then mm. when they're ready, they kill the enemy, right? Like sure. design problems like that, that kind of like create these very degenerate, you know, game states that yeah. were... The very the optimal strategy is not always the fun strategy, right? Right, or right. The delta between a player playing optimally and a player playing in the like intuitive way is so vast that the game becomes trivial when you like optimize it in a very when you do the obvious optimization, the game can become very trivial, in mm -hmm. which case it's like not, you know, I'm just pushing a button, it just happens, right? It's a flow chart. Yeah, yeah. So so your would you say then that your um process and your general way of thinking about game designs is generally um very iterative or or do you sometimes start with like okay, I have this like grand plan, this grand vision for like this this thing um or is it something in between? Um the the, the real question I'm trying to kind of get at is, you know, this is a show where we uh, talk a lot about game design theory and so I'm curious to hear other designers and their relationship with, um, you know, game design theory, if you've like, um, like I can tell from the way you're talking already that you already, you know, like that you certainly do have some sort of like um, guidelines for yourself and things that you've picked up and, and learned. Um, and so, but I'm just curious, like how, how much is that, um, how much does that inform your process like in the beginning of a new project? Yeah, it's pretty, and I mean, yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I think it's kind of like it's obviously evolved over time as I as I make games, see how they come out, and kind of like you know see play other games, and you know as you make your own games and play other games, you kind of like start seeing you start seeing the design work in other games, right? It's mm. it's and that that makes me start thinking about like, well, how did they come across this, and like how can that inform me? Yeah, so. Like originally, a lot of my my design stuff, it's very uh, it's very like mechanical. It's like a feeling I want to have while playing, right? It's um, so for for like for quantum, um, I, we can kind of we can get to that question a bit later. But it was like that was very much inspired by my time playing Yu-Gi-Oh. I played like mm -hmm. Yu-Gi-Oh for years. I went to tournaments and stuff. Um, and a lot of it's also like playing other games and being like, none of these other games are clicking with me, mm -hmm. and I'm like. It's like I, I think if we just tweak these parts, I think it could really work. And a lot of that, a lot that's where a lot of my uh, like the process of making a new game comes from is like playing an existing game or playing one of, even one of my older games and being like, you know, I don't think that quite worked out the way I wanted it to. Or what if I push the game in this different direction? What does that look like? Um, but kind of going forward, a lot of what I realized is actually really important with game design is to honestly like hide the design from the players a little bit if that makes sense so what i mean by that is like it's that balance between you know game mechanics about like this is these are the the rock you know the the rock paper scissors of the game the engine about like you know the choices and the trade-offs and everything and then there's also like the narrative and context of the game like mm -hmm. what are you doing like what's the fantasy like you know i'm playing like this this dude and i'm shooting stuff or, sure. or i'm flying a spaceship through dangerous things right and like having the mechanics match the like the logic of the world, I think is where like I definitely don't pay enough attention. And going forward, that's something I realize is so important. Mm. And some of the best games I played, I see how the logic of the world just fits perfectly with like the nuts and bolts design to the point where it doesn't feel designy, right? It doesn't feel as gamey. It well, feels yeah, just like, you know, that's a logic of the world and how that, to blend that, those two. That resonates with me a lot. I've, I'm the same way. I think that's probably true for a lot of systemic, you know, designers mm -hmm. who who are trying to do new things. And that's, you know, uh, if if I think a lot of types of design, it's a lot easier to do uh, to make the theme and the and the. Um, uh, the mechanics kind of blend together because a lot of the work there has already kind of been done for you. If you're, you know, if you're doing like a platformer, or if you're doing a shooter, or if you're doing a, mm -hmm. you know, like there's already been all this aestheticization 
aestheticization, for lack of a better <laughs> yeah. term, you know, uh, like that has that has been done for you that already, you know, like people see like, oh, there's a health pack there, you know, like mm -hmm. um, that has already been like a language has been built. And I think for designers like uh, you, I, there's a lot of like designing your own language like that has to be, uh, you know, built up over time between your mechanics and your and your system. Uh, I mean, you know, like it's not like your game is the most alien thing in the world. I think you do, you're working within the card game sort of space enough where that, you know, you can lean on some of those things a, a decent amount, but it is something that's a, certainly a struggle for me that as well, that kind of like, you know, uh, I mean, for me, I, like I, I'm in games because of game design. Like I, I just, mm -hmm. I want to do game design specifically. That's the process that I enjoy. So, you know, it, for, it took me a long time to realize like, if you're if no one's playing your game, then your game kind of doesn't exist and people aren't going to play yeah. your game uh, if the if the if the theme isn't there and if the theme isn't connecting well to the narrative or to the mechanics. And so, yeah, that's that's been like that's a really hard um, thing. I think a lot of designers actually come at games almost from the more thematic side first a lot of times. And for them, I think it it's easier for things to go down smooth, but it's harder for them to kind of like, you know, innovate and come up with some like new. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. Like, like you were saying, we're like, you know, the example you gave were like health packs and platformers and stuff like that, right? There's like these design. Tropes. Or, yeah, this design vocabulary, right? This like visual vocabulary where people who play games, like you just know what that is already, right? You mm -hmm. piggyback off a lot of existing things. And it's like, you know, it's it's like I, I play a lot of different games and stuff and you can definitely see where, or even just in the pitch for like a game, when you read that, you know, that one paragraph description on Steam, it's like, what are they pitching about the game? Are they pitching a mechanic? Are they pitching a world? And oftentimes, like if, if, if that description doesn't mention like a mechanic or something, you know, you can look at the video, you can like even download it and play it. Um, and a lot of times it'll feel like very derivative mechanically, right? So mm -hmm. in my mind, like it's not it's not like super interesting to me because I'm like, you know, from a mechanic standpoint, there's nothing like this game is doing that isn't somewhere else. But at the same time, like, you know, it's not not to make it sound like like it's not important, but it's like it's like a different skin of paint, right? It's a different tone, yeah. it's a different narrative, it's a different world. But what you do in it is is fundamentally the same as like many other games. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't may, mean it's any less of an experience. It's kind of like, sure. you know, the other side of things is like music games, right? Is a music game a game, right? There's no decisions. You're not do you're not deciding it. You're just you're purely executing, right? But it creates, you know, a different feeling, a different you know experience that itself does have value to you know different types of people. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was like you know there. In the games program, there's there's one person specifically who is always is like you know rhythm games. They're not like real games, right? Because mm. there's no decisions you have to make. And I'm like, it's an interesting thesis, and it gets you kind of thinking about like you know what is a game? You know what is design? What is yeah? What what is the point of this? Like what is the what is a good design versus a bad design? Is a music game a bad design because like oh I'm just pushing the buttons as they appear, right? Like that would be very boring if I put that in like any other game, right? But mm -hmm. it's it works right for different reasons and that's what i think is really interesting is there's that that and i think that that example kind of hits at you know the greater thing about what design is it's just in context of everything else and i think that also gets into the idea of like immersion and like immersion's not do the graphics look good i think immersion is so much about like you know when you play a game it's like oh wait it's like wow it's only it's been like 10 hours it only felt mm. like one engagement it's, I think it's when it's engagement when you're just like in that mode where like the world the mechanics the graphics just everything fits mm -hmm. right there's nothing that like breaks you out of like oh this is a video game there's nothing that reminding you that it's a video game it's just like it makes sense i definitely had that with like like ftl which has like fairly simplistic and crude graphics and it definitely is kind of gamey in how it like works and presents itself but like the rule set, like everything, you feel like a starship captain. And it's mm -hmm. that's the kind of game like a run will go by. And it's like that was two hours. Like that felt like 10 minutes. It's just. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, I think so, that... it's so consistent with everything and how it all just fits. Yeah. That that immersion term is a very good example of something I talk about a lot, which is um, like we sort of lack 
we lack vocabulary in general in games and mm-hmm. game design. And, um, you know, uh, we have this one term uh, immersion to refer to multiple different things. One is like audio visual right. immersion, right? One is like the kind of mechanical, you know, game design, systemic engagement that like I think you and I are probably really going for with games that we make. And then mm-hmm. there's also um, probably one that's just like pure raw addiction it just induces addiction in people and then they play way Mm -hmm. more than they want to play because they're compelled by you know various like random reward schedules and things like that and all number to go up yeah exactly and so all all of those goes under this banner banner a word of immersion and so that's a good example i think totally right yeah because you're right i think that's a good way to put it we don't have the words for it right because there's like that physical where you feel like you're there, right? The visuals, the audio, like VR is amazing at this, right? You feel like you're standing there, right? And like you turn your head, the audio is all around. And then there's like the mental immersion, right? It's like saying, it's like books. Like books can be immersive, but there's mm-hmm. no graphics. It's literally right. just text, but you know, your mind is immersed, right? So how do you bring your body and your mind and you know, your hands, everything, like even just the way you control the character, does that feel immersive? And maybe that's also partly why like games can be hard for some people to get into because like even just using a controller, I think a lot of us take that for granted. But, you know, if that's foreign to somebody that breaks that immersion, right? It's just like, I don't know where my buttons are. That's that's definitely going to break your immersion, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so. I, I want to ask you about Quantum Protocol. And before I do, though, I'm also curious to know a little bit more about your game playing background. You mentioned that you played a lot of Yu-Gi-Oh! back in the day. Um, but I'm curious if you've played a lot of other, uh, you know, tabletop card games or other tabletop games. For me, uh, board games, designer, Euro games and things around that space have mm-hmm. been always really informative and helpful and interesting to me. Um, so I'm curious to know if you've played a lot of games like that. Also, I'm kind of weirdly curious for some reason to know if you've played David Serlin's Codex. David Serlin's Codex? No. Okay. <laughs> I've never heard of that game. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Or, or is that the... No, I'm thinking of Cogmine. Never mind. That's uh, yeah. I've never heard of that. Okay. Um, I'll I'll send you a link. Uh, I think you yeah, should check it out. Kind but, of curious now. Um, but yeah, but, like, uh, tell yeah. me more about your background in terms of games. Yeah. So I mean, just starting from the board game thing. So, like, I didn't get into board games until until pretty late. Like, I've been I've been making video games like before I started like playing board games because to me, like, especially growing up and when I first started making games, board games were like Monopoly. Right? Oh yeah, it's same. like those those games, like those very simplistic games. Yeah. And then one day I remember someone brought like Catan, which is mm-hmm. I think a pretty tropey board game that kind of gets people into it. Sure. And it was like it was it was the moment when I'm like, wait, this is not Monopoly. This is like decidedly more complex than like Monopoly. Right. And mm-hmm. it like has a lot more to it. And then from that, um, it was more like whenever whenever there's like a bunch of people, usually someone was into board games, they'll bring a board game. And, you know, we'll start playing it. And that's when I got exposed to, you know, just the world of board games. Like I, I'm, I would still consider myself a pretty, pretty new to the whole board game world. But, you know, I've, I've since found like one of my favorite board games um, in recent years is Secret Hitler. Hmm. Um, it's like, you know, a hit I, and roll game. And I, I realized, know that like, I know I played another game by that designer, actually. Not that one, but I played another one. I forget which one it is. But yeah, I met him at uh, at IndieCade, I think. Um, oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really cool. Uh, really cool stuff he does. Yeah, but those like hit and roll games are mm-hmm. like, it's, yeah, I mean, it seems like a trope now because like Among Us is like a big deal. But like, to me, like in a board game, that was like a game that only worked in in person, right? Like there's just so much... Like the game is about the people playing it. It's not even about like the game per se, right? So much of the game is not on the board. Mm-hmm. And that to me was like so interesting. I was just like, wow, this is what, like, that got me super interested in like, this is what like games can do. Games can like be a lot of things. And it was like, wow, this is like a whole new genre, like a whole new type of game, right? It's like yeah. the game, the game is literally just about the people playing it. It's not the, the, the pieces on the board are very, are like barely part of the game. They're like not really the most important part. And it's like, uh, that was super interesting. But yeah, I mean, to come back to the answer, to the answer, it's like, uh, yeah, I wasn't super into board games. Even now, like I said, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself like a board game, like expert or anything. I, I love playing like these more complicated board games and stuff and always learning about them. Um, of course, unfortunately, like obviously in this, this time, it's kind of hard to, you know, get games together to play in person. And I think board games are so 
are so much better in person. Like it mm-hmm. just works better, you know, when you when that physicality of that person be there it comes back to I think that immersion as well. It's like that there's a real human, you know, being uh, being there, right? Um, because most of my other game playing experience was like uh, I played a lot of like League of Legends and stuff. So I play like those games, right? So League mm-hmm. of Legends, Overwatch, you know, the big popular games. Um, never really got into the other AAA stuff too much. Um, how about how about Magic and Hearthstone games like that? Ah, yeah, yeah. So Magic, I dabbled with a little bit, but the <laughs> I joke with my friend, but the I I'm not a fan of card games that have summoning sickness, and that's what Magic taught me. It, Interesting. I, it's uh, I think it's very balanced, but it feels very bad. It's just like it's my card. I want to use it now. You know, it's like, why do I have to wait to use my card? I already had the card. And I, I get why, like on a mechanical level, it works in the context of the game. Mm-hmm. But every game, every card game I played that just like had summoning sickness, I, it it always just like kind of like bothered me. It, it feels like it's just like taking a cheat page out of like magic. And because like it solves a lot of design problems when you have summoning sickness, it gives a lot more room for like counterplay. It lets, it makes the game more interactive. But like as a player, it just always felt bad to me, especially coming from Yu-Gi-Oh, where it was like very fast. Sure. Where you there's a lot more immediacy. And yeah, the game has a very, very different feel. Um, but then kind of segueing that back to like, you know, when Hearthstone came out, I played during beta and I played a little bit when I came out. Um, never quite clicked with me. It was like I appreciate the game, I enjoyed it, but it was the kind of game where it's like, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it was fun, I enjoyed it. Um, what, what do you think about like collectible card, like the, the whole collectability concept in card games? Do you have any opinions about that? Collectability in card games. Are we talking like in physical card games or like digital specifically? Or I mean, either like- really like, so I'll, I guess I'll yeah. just like, instead of trying to like lure you into, say, <laughs> you know, the question, I'll just like give you my thoughts. Like I, I, yeah. I, I love the idea of a two player or one player, um, like mm-hmm. Monster Basher, you know, like mm-hmm. the idea of like, so actually uh, I mentioned David Serlin before, he's a game designer and uh, he has a game called Yomi with that I uh, used to play a lot. And it just has like these card decks for different characters. You you would buy the whole deck and that's it. There's no customization or collecting of any kind. There's just characters and then you can just play against each other. And you have this little mm-hmm. card game. I remember one time playing Yomi uh, like on a bench with my girlfriend at Olive Garden while we were waiting to get a table and (laughs) but it's like this rather complicated you know board game and but anyway I just I love the idea of these like sort of monster basher fighting card games right and but I've always really disliked uh, I don't I'm not a fan of Magic or of Hearthstone for a couple of reasons Um, but one of the reasons is uh, that um, the collectability factor the fact this idea that you're gonna have this system and it's just going to like perpetually keep adding content, adding, adding, adding. Like to me as a mm-hmm. designer, so, like, and, and you know, I my background is kind of in music and, and art more. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's like so obvious that, you know, art is not the kind of thing and games are art. Art is not the kind of thing that you can just like add more perpetually and it will maintain its uh, form and its uh, quality. You know, like a TV mm-hmm. show, they're going to make, 20 more seasons of this TV show, you'd be like, uh, really? Like that, that seems like a lot, you know what I mean? And so I, I feel that there's similar things going on there with the collectability space. And so I don't know, I just thought I'd get your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really, I mean, that is a, that is definitely a good point. Right. And you see this in card games because like, uh, yeah, any game that has this kind of like persistent collectability uh, because then you have these problems of like power creep or whatever, right? Or even these all these other games as a service or whatever, like League of Legends, you could also kind of put in mm-hmm. because, you know, they keep adding new champions and stuff, yeah. and right? And so naturally, the as a if you are designing or creating content for this, you're incentivized to make this content different from the content that exists or better mm-hmm. to encourage people to like, you know, buy it, engage with it, or, or do so, or use it, right? Like, I made this content, you need to use it, because if your content, you know, doesn't compete with the stuff that's there, you know, it might as well not exist. And, you know, and then, yeah, it's kind of like a complicated thing, because on one hand, in the context of the game, yeah, this infinite collectability makes the game, I would, I would agree, like, uh, worse in a lot of ways. It makes the game very complicated for new players without necessarily greatly enhancing 
the game for players that are already there mm. um, because it creates this mountain of knowledge that new players need to overcome. But eventually a meta does form and there is clearly a subset of cards that actually matter. Sure. And then that's what becomes the active play set uh, anyway. So it's like, it's, it's a very short-term thing to kind of just like infuse this content and then eventually your content competes with itself, right? So right. it's not like this beautiful symphony you know, where all the instruments are contributing to this grand thing. Your instruments start conflicting with each other. It's like, why would I pick that when there's this, mm -hmm. right? And it, it creates, your, your game competes with its own content, which is weird. Um, but at the same time, it kind of, I also sympathetic to, you know, coming from Yu-Gi-Oh! Because the other side of it is part of the design of that game is not even the game itself. It's all, it's the game around the game. It's the metagame, mm. like that process of collecting and acquiring cards. I mean, nowadays it's kind of different because like there's, there's all this online, you know, you can buy cards online. There's all this, you know, I think. That era has passed playing, perhaps in a way. Yeah. Like when I was playing Yu-Gi-Oh! A lot of it was. When you're a kid's on the playground, you don't have access to the internet, right? You don't mm -hmm. have, you can't buy singles. All you do is get packs for like Christmas and your birthday and you, you roll with what you have, right? And then when that kid shows up and they got a new pack and they got like some crazy card, you're like, I need that, right? And you're trading for commons. Like how many times would you buy a common from a store? Like never, right? But in, in the limit, by limiting the way you can acquire cards and, and making, having cards valuable, this whole game emerges and creates this almost social system where you are part of this community and you're all collecting cards together. And it's like, hey, you know, Jimmy needs this card, right? Sure. Like maybe I can trade this to Jimmy. It's, oh, I got this card. I don't need it, but Jimmy has a card I need. He needs this card or whatever. Let, yeah. let I'll, you know, I'll go to school and trade him. And that's exciting. So I remember literally being on, you know, riding in the car, going to school with my parents you know, getting, and I'm like, oh, I'm so ready to like trade this to Jimmy. You know, I put in my dead box, I sleeved it up. I'm like, I'm ready. I'm going to go show him, you know, later today. Right. And that was exciting. Like that's, yeah, no, that's that, cool. like, that, that context, that's, that's like the perfect context for it is where like, not only are, you know, you're not able to like get on the internet and do all that kind of specific stuff, but also <laughs> you're usually at the mercy of your parents to buy you stuff. Cause you yeah. like are a kid and you don't have money. Whereas like, you know, even if you're an adult, like, you know, you ha you usually have some money, so you could just like go buy whatever card, and that creates this weird dynamic where you're like, well, should I just like buy like a ton of cards yeah. or something? Is that what I should yeah, do? Like, and like so much of it was this. It's the scarcity that I think was so interesting as far as like the meta game of collecting, because you know, yeah. once you have a store, you have a dollar amount on it. And you're like, I need that. It cost me this much. You know that that's where the discussion ends. That's not an interesting you know, decision, mm -hmm. like, is it worth that much to me is not, I mean, eh, it's, it's a decision, I guess, but I, I don't, it makes the game feel, you know, when people say, you know, pay to win or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's when it, when you start like bringing in these very like worldly things, that's not that immersive, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it breaks the game when you have like, I need to spend this money to be able to engage with the, you know, to buy this piece of the game. Right. right. It's just like, when we talk about immersion, that that is almost certainly immersion breaking when you have a dollar sign somewhere in your in your game, right? Being like, you need to buy this because, you know, for sure. And it's so I don't. So on one hand, like I I agree that like the collecting aspect, it's it's almost like the collecting and the game are two separate parts, and the game makes the collecting is what is giving the collecting part its value, but. I have so many cards in like my binder from the Yu-Gi-Oh days. I just collected because like they look cool. Like I just mm -hmm. wanted that card because I, those are the cards I was flipping through other people's binder. I'm like, yo, I never heard of that card. That card looks <laughs> cool. It's like, um, you know, can we trade? Do I have something you want? Right. Those are the cards I really value. I don't value the cards I bought as much, you know? Sure. Like these cards I got, they have a story of how I got them. Right. So my collection itself is the game, right? It is. Yeah. It is the story. Every card in there that I value, it's like that each one of those has a story about how I got that card. And that yeah. to me is, is really interesting because that, that won't change ever, right? That story won't change unless I, you know, sell the card or something, but. For sure. So tell me about why you made Quantum Protocol. Like what problems yeah. were you, what's problem space? What was the problem in the problem space that you were trying to solve? Oh, what did you want? Like, uh oh, you're under the law. Um, yeah, but uh, what what's the, like, I don't know, I guess if there's any like, 
I, I, I'm not sure. Is I, I feel like maybe there was a couple of steps between Yu-Gi-Oh and Quantum Protocol in terms of the design uh, and, you know, other games that you had either been working on yourself or that you had played um, from other designers. Um, but yeah, how? why did you want to make Quantum Protocol? Mm-hmm. And uh, give me your general yeah. pitch for the game, yeah. I guess. So the uh, so the rationale behind Quantum Protocol, so the story behind Quantum Protocol isn't, okay, so it's not like super complicated. Um, it, it's like the motivation was twofold. One, um, my opportunities to play Yu-Gi-Oh with other people um, got significantly harder, you know, once I kind of left college and stuff, right? It's like, it's it's just so much harder to like find a group, especially because now I live, you know, in a in a bigger city. So there's not as many card shops around and it's just the community of getting out to play. I just don't have as much time. Uh-huh. There's just a lot, it, there's a lot more things that make it harder to play. And even when I did play games of Yu-Gi-Oh!, um, the way I describe Yu-Gi-Oh! is people say, oh, don't, don't you just win in one turn? You don't actually play? That's partially true. Like Yu-Gi-Oh! games, there's three types of games in Yu-Gi-Oh! A third of the games, you stomp them. A third of the games, they stomp you. And the other third is you go even and actually have a real game. Hmm. And it's that third category that I found really interesting. And there's so many moments. And the moments in Yu-Gi-Oh! that I remember the fondest are when you know, my opponent has this board set up, they have a bunch of stuff on their field, and I need to break their board. I need to make entry to the field and win the game, right? They have the upper hand, and I need to swing the momentum of the game um, by, like, very intentionally playing cards and essentially outplaying my opponent by breaking through their defenses. Um, But in the actual context of playing Yu-Gi-Oh! in person, the turns can take so long to pull off some of these combos that it's very non-interactive. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm literally watching my opponent play cards. So that got me thinking, why don't I just have the computer do it? Because like they're not making any decisions. The defenses all have rules, and it's very obvious when they're going to do stuff. It's not really like on their defensive cards. They're not making as many interesting decisions. So I was like, can we just make a single-player game so I can get the fun part about breaking the board without having to like have them wait on me or me wait on them? Yeah. So that was my idea of like, you know, at first I was like, oh, maybe single-player card game for that. And then... Obviously, uh, later games like Hearthstone, Slay the Spire was the biggest one that mm-hmm. like came out that really like kickstarted that whole deck builder, roguelike, you know, the single player card game genre. Did you play um, Prismata, by the way? People recommend that to me. Um, I recommend I it. On my Steam. I haven't quite yeah. played it. They told me it's like a similar deal, and people tell uh, recommend it. it's like yeah, it's also like good and it's like RTS card game kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, but so with Slay the Spire, I played it. I enjoyed it. It was once again one of those games that I I enjoyed, but I didn't love. And mm-hmm. I remember talking to a lot of people that a lot of people really love that game. And I always like talked to them and tried to get their set mindset about it. And what I kind of got down about it was um, Slay the Spire had this thing where people were telling me the opt- like you win in Slay the Spire because you don't try to build a specific thing. You need to use what the game gives you and kind of like improvise and make what the game is giving you work like if you want to roll into slay the spire and be like i'm gonna run a poison build like that's not a good idea going yeah. in you kind of if the game doesn't give you the cards to do that you can't do that roguelike um, style that's like how you're supposed to play roguelikes as well yeah exactly and that in my head was a little like i understand it but to me that wasn't quite um as fun like I wanted more agency over what Strategic I wanted agency. to try. Yeah. Yeah. Like I wanted to try, like I played with some cards in Slay the Spire and I'm like, oh, I, what do these cards work together? I want to try a run where I like abuse these. Like, will that work? Like as a more like a more of a toy, I guess, that you can play around a, a game well, that like you can have more agency over what you want to try a certain a certain game. Yeah. So it's not about winning the run. It's about like, I think this sounds fun. I want to play like that because winning to me is not the point of you know playing this game it's like am i enjoy am i having fun trying to win the winning is like eh, whatever yeah can, and can i feel I... like in games like say the spire it optimizes too much about like you want to win the run to have the optimal experience and that to me is not you know yeah i, I, I gotta i gotta bounce off that a little bit because like so the way i think of this is um that roguelikes and slay the spire to me basically is is a roguelike it uses different mm-hmm. mechanics than a traditional roguelike but it basically works on that same principle and in all roguelikes you're basically wa- riding this wave of like random information and just optimizing 
at all times. Mm -hmm. And that means that you have to, whatever it gives you, you have to know, you know, about all the system rules basically Mm -hmm. and optimize. And, you know, of course there's a lot of randomness involved there, but like you're basically riding this wave of randomness and the better players know enough about the game where they can successfully optimize and win or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that now, like how I feel about that is um, that I, and I think it's sort of like what you're saying is that I want, um, I want to pursue winning and simultaneously exercise creativity at the same time. Uh, Like, exactly. Right. Like I want to have ingenuity and be like, like, I don't want to just optimize. I want to like, Oh wait, what if I could, you know, like, I wonder if you can blankety blank and then blankety blank and like, you know, like come up with some weird thing that yeah, like exactly. is beyond optimization. Yeah, so after the first few random things, like you start getting ideas like, wait, what if I do that with that and mm-hmm. then get this to do that, right? You can start kind of, you're not reacting to the game as much. You start kind of like in asserting your influence on it. Like you can influence the game just as much as the game influences you, right? It's right. like, right. Like, like you're saying with Slay Aspire, it feels like a lot of times you're along for the ride and you're just like, you know, you're trying to like switch the tracks to make it go to inter- influence the way, you know, the game ends up turning out. But you don't have as much, you know, direct agency over, you know, over how you get to win kind of thing, like yeah. the route you end up taking. And then the other part of Slay the Spire that kind of, that was like, in context, I think it makes perfect sense. Like, so once again, this is... You can't be like, oh, just change that part of Slay the Spire and then it works. Obviously, sure. I, I'm not saying that. Yeah. But the way Slay the Spire's cards work, like to me, they were too simple. Like that's mm-hmm. not what I enjoy about a card game is like the meta. It's like it felt like it focused too much on a lot of meta things, like what cards I will get later yep, or what opportunities I'll be offered later rather than how do I make this? What can I do with the stuff I have now? And I think a lot of that's like, a lot of the cards are you play them and then they're done, mm-hmm. right? It's just, it's a very, the card effects are very streamlined, very simple. And a lot of the synergies in the game come from just like keyword matching. So it's like, if I see a card, off, if I'm offered a card and has a keyword that synergizes with this other keyword, you know, then, okay, they both have the same keyword. They must go well together, slap them together. Yep. And it's a, a very it's, binary a relationship. The, yeah. And a lot of the game knowledge is like, how many of these cards will synergize with this, mm-hmm. right? How many have the same keyword in the pool and like, which ones can I be offered later? Um, and if you try the quantum, I really try to avoid things like keywords, like things don't really say like, oh, you, you know, take your defense and like do this with it. And then, oh, you know, or attack with your defense, like things like that. Cause that's a very, it's a card that opens a lot of opportunities, but also is like a keyword matcher where you're just, as a player, I just look at a card and be like, oh, it says defense, use yep. that. Or it says this, use that. It says like, you know, anger, use that. Or it's a, you know, you're just like saying, I want all these keywords, stack them together, let's go. Um, yeah, I mean. I don't know how it will be better, but it will be better. Well, there's, I mean, to me, it's like you're designing for immersion complexity. That's that's what you want is you want, uh, and, and keywords sometimes can be um, like a, the very binary and very like, you know, just sort of, as you said, they match and so they go well together. So you bring them, you use them together in this one way and they have this one canned effect. Whereas uh, what I think, you know, we are going for or what um, I think I look for in strategy games is, um, you know, emergent complexity, things that have second order effects <laughs> So like, it, you know, a very simple example is like, okay, you have like an ice spell and maybe the ice spell just does two damage. That's whatever. But maybe the mm-hmm. ice spell also, you know, creates an ice cube next to them or something. You know what I mean? Like, and, and it's like, well, I don't necessarily want that ice cube, but maybe now I can, that will change the space in some way that I can now use some other mm-hmm. thing. And, and ice cube is not just like a binary, you know, uh, keyword, uh, like an enum or something, but it's actually a thing that has properties. And so I can interact with it in a number of ways and uh that that will connect so like uh, some another word i use sometimes is coupling you know like having higher coupling um and keywords tend to be very very low coupling like they're just low amount of coupling so they just they couple to each other and that's it they don't really interact with anything else um and whereas um yeah so so that's 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 kind of how I interpret that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, and to piggyback on your like ice spell example, I mean, a, a way to do an ice spell is like, okay, so you know, hit, you know, create a giant ice block and crash it down on the enemy head, you know, and do damage, great. But what if you add to that spell to be like, okay, that ice block that crashed down, now it stays. Yep. Right. It doesn't like it doesn't immediately just go away. You know, it's not just like a video gamey thing where it just disappears after it's done. Right. What if it stayed? Yep. Right. Or in quantum, a lot of the 
way I started thinking about effects. It's, it's kind of similar to how Yu-Gi-Oh does them. Um, but it's like, if you imagine A causes B, so like I if imagine effect like, oh, this card, when I click this effect, you know, when I activate it, deal two damage to something on the field. Okay, that's that's like a very linear way to use it. Now, you know, which target you select, all that stuff that has, you know, that has strategy. But this effect works in one way. It does damage. Mm -hmm. um, and it's triggered in one way. I click, you know, I activate it. Yep. But you can separate that and get the same effect, but also, you know, increase the possibility space. So you can say like, when you click this card, move it to one random, you move it to a slot. And then secondarily, when this card is moved, deal two damage to something on the field. Sure. So you get the exact same idea of like, I activated it and I deal two damage, but now the trigger condition is opened, mm -hmm. right? So if another card moves this card, that will trigger this. Or what if another card triggers off cards moving? Now it, this card will trigger that card, right? So the naive case, it's creates self-synergy where the card essentially does one thing all by itself. But the way it does it is kind of indirectly. So you can have other cards interact with that mechanic. So now you have these input mechanics of moving cards, you know, as the output and the input for like this card kind of thing. It creates like little openings, I almost imagine. Like it's like little neurons with little like thingies sticking out. Mm -hmm. It's like what mechanics can trigger this and what, what mechanics does this trigger, right? It's like, and it's not the keyword, it's the mechanics of the game, card moving to hand, card yes. being played, card yes. dealing damage, card moving. That's, so that's it's things that you systemic it's just rules. mechanics of the game. Yeah. It's like yeah, and just, that, that's just what the game is. That's what made me the systemic rules of your game. Um, I mean, there's many things about your game that I like, but this is the fact that it had systemic rules, something like the execute system, um, where uh, on the left side of the uh, mm -hmm. of the rows uh, for people who haven't played the game yet, um, uh, you can click this button that says execute and then it will trigger all of the cards in that row to do their like basic action, I think, pretty much and then discard attack, themselves. Yeah, and so like that alone, I mean, I, I play so many of these like deck builder card, you know, fight like monster basher kind of things. And I, I'm looking for that kind of stuff. Like, and that, like when I saw that and I saw like, uh, there was one of the decks that um, it starts off, it was like the music, the muse deck. Yeah, I believe. Idol, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it starts off with all your cards have like no damage and then you have to like level them up sort of to end that leveling system and how that interacts with multiple different systems. Um, it just seemed like I was detecting like high levels of coupling on all, all these mechanics. And uh, the biggest difference is that it has like a good amount of systemic rules. Um, you know, like to me, like magic or, or, um, or Hearthstone, the number of systemic rules is actually like really, really low. And I think the reason for that, mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that is when the number of systemic rules is super, super low, that means that you can have componential rules like of almost, you know, infinite amount because there's nothing yeah. like sort of restricting you. It's just the, all the rules are just on the cards. Whereas your game is a lot more structural and and that has that makes it probably a little bit harder. I assume that as you, uh, I don't know what your plans are long term for the game. I do want to ask about that, but um, I I would expect that it's tricky making new content for this game because you have all these interconnecting things. And like, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. if you're if you're like a big corporation that just needs to endlessly sell stuff and that's like your main drive, that's a real downside. But if you're a human being who wants to make cool things for other human beings to play, like it's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely one of those moments where like people are doing things with the game that I did not expect, right? It's like I see the plays people make and, you know, people use cards in ways I'm like, I never thought that works, but that definitely makes sense that that would work, right? And you create mm -hmm. these different synergies between cards. And yeah, calling it like as a systemic game, that was definitely like, that, that, that was the, that was definitely the goal, right? It's like not binding card interactions together. Like, I don't know what is really possible with, like when I make card cards for this game, I really don't think of specific combos most of the time. Sometimes I think of like, you know, a bread, I'm trying to make like a bread and butter combo sure. and it's like, you yeah. just do this and that happens. Um, but a lot of the times it's not, it's, it's not about like designing combos. Like I don't design the cards to work together per se. All the cards work together because they all work on game mechanics. It's a matter of just like, can this card manipulate the other cards in a novel, in a way that other cards don't kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Like, or is this card moving cards differently from other cards? And like, how does that all interact? Because then the rest will just work. Like yeah. know, something will come up um, just because of how the system ends up working. So, and then, so, yeah, yeah. Go, go on. 
Yeah, and it gets super bonkers when eventually I started being like, okay, it was it, this was inspired by like how the card effects are presented. Like, I wanted to try to make sure everything's like super clear about the cards because when you have all these like systemic rules and stuff, um, you need to. It's presenting the information to be very clear so players can players can foresee what will happen. That was super important to me. It's like before somebody plays the card, they can think in their head and be like, this will do that, do that, do that. And the game is very, very strict about like how things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So players can play preemptively rather than just like, you know, randomly playing stuff and then watching dominoes fall down as they know where the dominoes are going. Um, And a lot of that came with like how the effects are presented where they're just like little tabs, like stickers, like put on the card kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of got me thinking, it's like, okay, what happens if there's a card that literally moves the stickers from one card to another? Um, and then that explodes the possibility because now you can literally combine the you can strip the effects off one card and put it on another. Um, and that is that creates like, I don't know, it, it, extraordinary possibility that um, so far hasn't broken anything, but it creates a lot of really, really interesting scenarios where like you as a player can be super creative and expressive with how you play the cards. And that was also really important in quantum is like it's not just what's in your deck. It's not just the cards you got. like, it's really how you play them, like the order you play them and where you play them. There's so much execution focus, like just playing the hand is really complex in, mm-hmm. in quantum. And drafting your cards is almost less complicated than how you end up needing to play them. Because um, you have really good cards, but if you just spam them and just click stuff, uh, you're going to be really inefficient. You're probably not going to do well. Likewise, you can have kind of like not great cards, um, but if you play them very optimally, you can most mostly win um, in most scenarios. There's one player... Um, who's crazy and uses one of the starter decks to like beat the last level and they take forever to do it but they play like perfectly optimally um, and chain the effects in the right way this idle deck basically the, the deck has so much just like stuff you can do with it that you can slowly beat the final boss with like just a starter deck it takes a long time because the damage like, is very low um, but like you can play so optimally um, that you can kind of, you can actually get it eventually. Um. Nice. So uh, this game came out in November of last year, and That's right. uh, and uh, how how are you feeling about it? And what are your plans uh, for the game going forward? Yeah, I mean the game is doing like okay. I mean it's not doing amazing. It's not doing poorly. It's definitely in the squarely of okay category. It's better than I what I thought it would do, um, which is I don't I don't know what that means. My my definition of success is like you know very relative, of course. Um, as far as like plans going forward, um, there's definitely like some things I'm working on. Um, one thing I, um, I don't want to mention yet, but that's coming up at the probably end of this month sometime. Um, but a lot of it is like adding new decks to the game. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know we just got to this discussion of like collectibles and stuff, but the way the game is actually set up, it usually partitions it. So it's more like you can't mix all the cards together at any time. Oh, right, right, right. Um, Every character is more or less segregated from the other. So it's like different play styles and they kind of interact with a common pool of cards. It's basically just like different characters in Slay the Spire. Mm -hmm. So adding more of those, which will give like, you know, more. There are all these archetypes and stuff that I wanted to do, but obviously I was like, okay, get the game out. It has enough content. I think people will enjoy that. We'll see if it does well enough and it's doing well enough. So I'm like, okay, let's make some more archetypes and kind of like flesh out some of these other ideas I had and these other themes. Um, That'd be kind of fun. Uh, So at least in the short term, there's a couple more decks that I want to uh, finish. And then after that, um, I don't really know. It's kind of hard to plan too far in advance um, because it very much depends on like, you know, how some of these more experimental things I'm trying go. And if they go well, then I'll do more of it. And if they don't, then I'll do something else. Is the game, um, and the, right now, is the game only available on Steam? Or are there other platforms? Are there platforms platforms planned? Uh, only Steam right now. Um, I would love to do other... The first thing I would love to do is other languages. And then the other, as far as other platforms, um, I don't think the platform is the main limiter as to whether it can reach more or fewer people right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so focusing on Steam and just making that the best version as possible. And then maybe in the future, you know, once I'm ready to move on to something else at some point, you know, eventually, then um, maybe then I'll look to like port it to other things or, you know, do more things, being, basically being like, all right, it's done, uh, package it up. And, you know, that will let me do more things like more languages, more stuff like that. Um, but for now, I having everything... Yeah, no, it's been very tempting to try to localize this game sooner. Um, 
but having everything be in English is a not to be underestimated because it means I can change any part of the game very cheaply. Yeah, that's um, uh, I mean, that's uh, that's always been my thing with like uh, localization is like I'm like, you know, I'm the kind of developer who like I'm I'm making patches years after the game is uh, mm-hmm. out. Right. And and so it's like hard for me to know when to do that, you know, because I don't want to mm-hmm. have to right. like uh, I don't even know what the process is like for that. I guess it's just like. You have to like keep track of any new text that you add to the game and get that all translated as well. It's like it's just, it's just very tedious. Yeah, I did localization yeah. with another one of my games, and it, it just slows down any. Cha- it makes changing things very expensive, or incre- mm. it greatly increases the cost of changing things. And you know, I think a lot of with Quantum, it's like I don't expect to get it right the first time or the second time. I expect to get it right eventually. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's very iterative and based on player feedback and like you know the data I get and stuff like that, and you know, kind of using that to try to adjust the game and push it in a way that kind of like fits how people end up playing it. Cause there's like, like there's the players that I expected to play the game, you know, the market I was trying to make it for. And then there's the people who actually showed up to play it. Mm. Um, and those are not always exactly the same thing. Right. So kind of figuring out like who's playing the game, what do they need out of it and trying to like steer it more towards that direction and, you know, send off some edges. Of course it's, Trying to keep the game's identity is also really important. So it's a really fine balance, right? But, you know, you don't really control who ends up playing a game. So mm-hmm. whoever plays it and kind of seeing what the feedback they have. And maybe the game ends up being, you know, different than I originally envisioned. But maybe that's okay. Well, I hope that um, through this podcast, I can get some more, you know, game design minded people to check your game out. Because I do think it's pretty special um, in this space. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, yeah, great work. And um, would you like to plug uh, your websites and the game on Steam? Anything else you'd like people to check out? Yeah, I mean, check out Quantum Protocol on Steam. Uh, check out kyomaris.com. And that has all the links to, you can check me out. I'm on Twitter. Um, at Kong Jaren. I don't post too much, but I do try to uh, post things that are interesting. So you won't get too much spam from me, um, but I will try to have pictures in any post I make. Uh, so there you go. Yay. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jaren, for coming on the show. Thanks again for having me.